Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Before we start this week's podcast, we want to let our listeners know that Econ Talk is a 2008 Weblog Awards finalist in the category of Best Podcast. Voting begins today, January 5th, 2009, and continues through January 12th. You can vote once a day. To vote, visit our homepage, econtalk.org. There you'll find a link in the upper left-hand corner of the page that will let you vote. Thanks for voting, and thanks for listening. And now for this week's podcast. My guest today is my colleague here at George Mason University, Pete Betke. Pete, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thanks, Russ. Glad to be here. Our topic for today is the Austrian theory of business cycles, which and, and the role of monetary policy in, in that uh, in the cycle uh, phenomenon. And I'm fascinated as someone who knows virtually nothing about it. Uh, I, I'm a Austrian on the micro side. Uh, become increasingly so and through my interest in Hayek. But I don't know much about the macro side. So our topic for today is to try to explore that uh, for me, the beginner, and I suspect some of our listeners as well. So start us off. What is distinctive and uh, what's unique about the Austrian view of the business cycle? Well, we actually have a, <clears throat> a good place to start because the uh, the Austrian uh, position is one that says that while there may be macroeconomic problems, there's only microeconomic explanations and microeconomic solutions. And so what I mean by that is there, there are phenomena of unemployment, inflation, these sort of aggregate phenomena, but the causes of those aggregate phenomena should be rooted in the choices that people make. And so what the Austrian theory of the trade cycle is, it's a combination of a bunch of different factors that flow out of that, uh, one of which is the nature of the way money works its way through the system, which money doesn't just, an increase in the money supply doesn't automatically lead to an increase in the price level tomorrow. Uh, it leads to relative price changes, which if there's no other intervening changes would equate to the, you know, the quantity theory, but it doesn't happen just overnight instantaneously. The quantity so, theory, let, let's review the quantity right. theory. The quantity theory goes back to Irving Fisher and then was revitalized by Milton Friedman and the quantity theory is, is to some extent an accounting identity right. that MV equals PT, the amount of money times the number of times V is velocity, the number of times it turns over, equals the aggregate value of economic uh, activity, P times T. T is transactions, P is the pro- average price level. So in the monetary theory, if, if M goes up and V and T don't change, then P goes up, and that's why – that's the simplest, most basic argument in favor of a theory that says inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon. But, but Friedman and others, in recent years especially, uh, the others, have worked on the role of expectations. Uh, you know, Friedman's empirical work on monetary policy was that monetary policy had an influence with a long and variable lag. So it didn't suggest that – that prices or anything would adjust overnight unless, I think, 
correct me if I'm wrong, unless people expected that and it was well understood and everybody knew about it. But since in reality they don't and they confuse price signals with that, are, that might be real versus nominal ones that are just due to inflation of the money supply, then you can get real effects from monetary policy. That's a, that's a Chicago classical view, correct or not? Yeah, I mean, the, the, there's going to be a subtlety in the discussion here because Mises, in his book Theory of Money and Credit, fully endorses the Fisher uh, position against monetary cranks, what he called monetary cranks. Who are those? The belief, <laughs> that, the belief that you could solve a problem by printing money. So if you see poverty in the world, print more money. If you see, you know, so, and, and so uh, these were sort of, you know, the, the people that uh, didn't see a connection between, uh, say, money and inflation or the distortionary consequences of inflation. And if you put yourself back in the mindset of the early 20th century, we can see that several countries went through these di very difficult bouts of inflation, hyperinflation, because of this kind of idea that you could just, you see a problem, you print money. The problem of poverty, we don't have enough money. And so the the fusion of the real and, right, and, and monetary side of the economy. Right. And so there was this classical dichotomy, which is reals affect reals, nominals affect nominals. And the quantity theory of money uh, sort of was very important. And, and Mises fully embraces that. But what he says is we don't want to have a mechanical interpretation of the quantity theory, which would somehow lead people to believe that uh, money was just a veil in the economy and couldn't have real Irrelevant, yeah. Right, irrelevant and couldn't have real impact. And so <clears throat> Hayek later on often referred to this as a money as a joint, uh, and either it's a tight joint in which it's just a veil, or it's a broken joint, which Hayek argued, the Keynesians argued, or what he argued was it's, for a, it's a loose joint, which is sort of similar to Friedman's idea of the long and variable lag, that while there's a jointness between you know, the increase in the supply of money and the price and the activity that's going on in the, in the price level, it takes a while for the adjustments. And so what the Austrian focus was on the monetary side was to look at the relative price adjustments and to see where, and that's how they get these injection effects, which they get, the argument goes back to a man named Richard Cantillon, who argued a uh, um, long time ago. Long, long time ago. Right? Century, yeah. maybe? And what he argued was money you know, comes in at a particular point in the economy, and then it ripples through the economy like the way that you would, if you threw a pebble into a, uh, into a pond, the way the ripple would come all the way out. I, 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 if we can just hold off getting to the expectation stuff till later, because there is a history of thought idea here. But Bob Lucas did when he, after the rational expectations revolution and new classical macroeconomics did take on, Lucas uh, wrote a book called Understanding Business Cycles. And at the core of that was his attempt to sort of translate into his language the way Hayek told the business cycle story which was the confusion between relative price and general price. And that's how he gets his island model. And so we don't know, we get confused whether or not it's a general price level change or it's a relative price level change. And because we're of our confusion, that leads to distortions in the pattern of exchange and production. Okay, but if I let, can... Yeah, let's, well, let's talk about, unless you want to delay it, let's talk about what you mean by relative price adjustments because I think some people are not going to understand that. Well, a particular price of a particular commodity changes not all commodities at once. Right. So in a lot mm -hmm. of ways, in, you know, for Milton Friedman to sort of defend the classical dichotomy, reals affect reals, nominals affect nominals, 
and to challenge uh, the idea that you could just throw money at things. Uh, Friedman often explained it in terms of a helicopter, right? If you dropped, dropped money on the system as a helicopter, what would happen to the price level, right? It would all come up, and so we might have more money, but the prices would adjust in general to reflect the, the new money, and therefore it wouldn't have the effect. Our standard of living wouldn't change. Right, and so we're oh. not fixing poverty by doing that, right? So, but the question then is, What's the Austrian take on that? That t- the Austrian take is essentially that that the price signals in the, the way I understand it, the, the little I understand it, that the price signals in the economy get distorted right. and cause real effects that are bad as a result of this inflation. So, w- is the argument that the money doesn't fall everywhere equally because you can't have a real helicopter drop? Right, that, that that new money is injected into the system at a particular point and then works its way back out through the system, like I was saying with this ripple effect. So that so the first thing is the non-neutrality of money. That that's the first proposition in the Austrian idea. Now, so explain that meaning that that money is not ever uh, sort of neutral in the sense that they adjust up instantaneously and all the effects go out. That uh, uh, since money is one half of all exchanges, goods trade for money and money trades for goods. Goods don't trade for goods in a monetary economy, right? That would be barter. Uh, That money is one half of all exchanges. If you screw around with money, you're going to screw around with all the exchanges in the economy because you're going to get these relative price effects. You know, sort of just like uh, um, normally... When you and I would talk about microeconomics, we would talk about relative price effects as how the market works. Well, if we distort how the market works, we're going to get distortions in the pattern of exchange and production. That's as, the basic idea. Okay, now lots of things distort the pattern. Taxes distort the pattern. Subsidies distort the pattern. Uh, preferential barriers right. that, that, are, that are set up. Those cause resources to flow in ways they wouldn't otherwise flow. So the suggestion here is that monetary policy does the monetary policy does the same thing, and my response as a skeptic would be, okay, so what? But why is that such a big deal? Well, I think what you have you've to, added another one, right? But but you have to combine that then with the next aspect of things, okay. which is the, the is the idea of that the capital structure is made up of particular goods, not just K, not just a homogeneous thing uh, that we measure in aggregate, but particular goods and goods that are combined together that have um, well, they have their 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 multi- multiplicity in their uses, but not complete uses. So they're multiply specific. So what does so, that mean? Okay, so I can't turn a beer barrel plant into a soccer ball plant overnight. The particular goods that go into making beer are not the same as go- those go okay, so, into to making, yeah, you know, so let soccer. Me give, let me, give, let me talk about that in a little more um, basic way and, and bring in the critique I think you're, you're making. We, would often, we often talk about the amount of capital in the economy, and we talk about how capital is a complement to labor, so it enhances the productivity of labor, which is obviously true. You work on an assembling line, you can make a lot more cars than if you work by yourself with a chisel and a and a welding and welding equipment. So, as I understand what you're saying is, is that if we look across the whole economy, at any point in time, we have a certain amount of capital, which we would aggregate through some very crude rule of thumb about 
dollar value and prices and, and trying to figure out the quantity of capital. So we're pretty confident we have more capital today than we had in 1920, and the quality of it's better, whatever that means. Uh, but if we have uh, – and we also talk about how capital flows in response to return. Right. Right. So what you're, what I understand this critique is then, the Austrian critique of this is that, well, that's all well and good. And over time, that's probably true. But at a point in time, uh, and I want to take a more, uh, uh, timely example than the soccer ball beer plant issue. If you have a car factory and you say, well, if the car factory gets shut down, if the owners of the car factory, the managers of the, of the institution, the organization are not doing well, they'll go out of business, and the resources will flow to their next best, highest value use. In the case of American car companies, it's probably toward another car company, uh, a foreign car company that would be here, or toward a foreign car company overseas, or to something else. And your claim is that that the assembly line for a car company is not very liquid. The money is liquid, but the, the assembly line itself, the, the investment that went into that, is only good for making cars. Is or, that the point? Or, or close substitutes to cars, right? I mean, they could make they could be transformed to make trucks or something like that. <laughs> yeah. But they can't be transformed to make bubble gum or, or some other good windmills. That, yeah, windmills <clears throat> or something. So I think that the reason why this and why is, is that Im- significant? Well, the reason why this is important is because if the signals that led to the pattern of production and the investments in the capital goods were false. And then proven to be false through as as the adjustments are made and markets reveal them to be false, then the investments that were made in those machineries are are particularly costly. Uh, this is um, so the example I use all the time when I'm trying to teach is I use the difference between when you have a little kid, anyone who's a parent uh, as a little kid, they go through a dinosaur phase. And there's two different ways to make sort of dinosaurs with your son or daughter. One of them is with play-doh. All right, and you could make it and shape it, and and the other one is with Legos, and Legos are these little blocks that require particular patterns to fit together in a very you know sort of difficult way. You got to get the sheet out and follow them. With Play-Doh, you kind of just shape it, it kind of you know, and then you say you know, little Stephen, do you think that looks like a dinosaur? Isn't this a brontosaurus? And he says, No, Daddy, it looks like a dog. And you go, Okay, well then you just smush you know the different parts, and then you put the tail up or whatever, and you you know you, you end up by getting a brontosaurus event by pushing the clay around, whereas if I had the Legos, I have to follow those instructions because if I get to the end and I don't have a yellow little thing because I missed it, then I'm not going to be able to make the dinosaur. I have to go all the way back to the beginning. I want to suggest that the capitalist economy, uh, the capital structure in a capitalist economy is more like Legos than it is like clay. But for modeling purposes, we often treat it as if it's like clay. Mathematically. uh, Mathematically rather than as the Legos. Now, the reason why this matters is because... Because the costliness of the mistake, let's say I'm not paying attention to the signals on the instructions for the Legos, I got to go back, I got to rip apart, go back to a particular part, and then build back up again. But literally, and in the with, meanwhile, there's no entertainment value. Right. And in the real side of the economy, there's no production taking place. Right. Is that adjustment? Whereas with the clay, it seems easy for me to fix mistakes. Mistakes are easy. So uh, to fix, not completely easy, but but relatively. If you bake it, so it's a strange, a little bit strange example. You're talking about the. You're assuming we don't bake the clay. In yeah. which case, you're really in a. I'm just 
just I started with Plato, yeah. <laughs> right? So it's already there. Yeah. I already started with Plato. So so we combine the 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 monetary side and and its effect on prices, and those are like the instruction sheets for the for the Legos. And then we have the capital side, all right. And then that's going to be like the particular goods and services that build up the capital structure in the economy. Um, and then you have to ask, okay, well, what's the transmission mechanism by which these things are connected? And that's going to be through the credit market. And if you combine these, where the where financial intermediation, right, where you're going to have the savings of some become the investment funds for others, and if somehow the interest rate is artificially lowered from what it would have been had the regular pattern of of intertemporal decision making, that is, my savings and consumption trade off. Um, uh, so the savings of some get transmitted into investment funds for others. If we artificially lower the interest rate, it appears to be that I have more savings in the economy than I actually have to justify my investments. So what used to be an unprofitable investment at a higher interest rate now appears to be a lower, uh, a more profitable investment. I buy into that borrow the money, invest in these things, which are in fact a, t- a capital structure. But as the economy's money works its way through, remember it's an injection, then it wrinkles, th- ripples through. So as people get the new money, right, that sort of, you know, the, 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 um, they, they reassert their savings and, tr- and consumption trade-offs. And the scarcities, real scarcity of savings or whatever, come back. And as a result, what appeared to be profitable – proves itself to be unprofitable, and then you have the boom and bust. So that's the simplest way for me to try to explain, you know, the boom and bust. And then over the years, people have used, you know, various different analogies, the hangover theory. You know, if you drink too much, you know, you're happy at, at uh, you know, 11 o'clock at night, but you're not very happy at, you know, five the next morning, right? That's the boom and bust cycle. Wanna, let me stop for a minute. I want to just clarify a few things that you went over a little bit quickly. First, a very important idea that I want – I don't think we can talk too much about these days, which is what financial intermediaries do, which is basically there's at any point in time, there's a group of people who have more income than they want to consume, and there are other people who want to consume more than their income. And we need to match those folks together, and the way they get matched together is through banks, investment banks, um, the stock market, and other other things – other financial institutions are essentially matchmakers. They're middlemen, to go back to the, the Michael Munger podcast on the topic. What they're doing is they're, they're matching those people together, and the way they match them together is through – the way that market uh, is relatively happy is through the interest rate adjusting right. so that uh, at, the, at a high enough interest rate, I'm willing to give up some consumption today for consumption tomorrow, and you in turn are willing to take consumption today and, and pay me back down the road. And of course, once you have that, as soon as you have that intertemporal across time activity, you introduce risk because and uncertainty because there is the possibility that you will not keep your promise. You will not repay. And so the market tries to develop mechanisms to make that uh, more likely than less likely, which would be, uh, I look into your past, uh, I have collateral, which would be uh, the most obvious thing I, I would look for. And then Unfortunately, in recent years, the third thing that's happened is that I look for people outside of this transaction to guarantee it, whether it's the government or a private mechanism, a credit default swap, which is what we've been talking about with with Arnold Kling. So the way I understand what you're saying then is that monetary policy comes in, artificially, artificially lowers the 
price of future consumption, the interest rate, below what it would normally be, inducing too much investment. Well, that's, too much or malinvestment. Well, that's the point I wanted to distinguish. Investment in activities that that uh, otherwise wouldn't be profitable, but now appear to be profitable because of the interest rate. So it's not necessarily the case that you would call it overinvestment um, as much as you would call it a malinvestment. Yeah, try, try to go into that a little bit more, because your story was a relative price story, yeah. originally. But this to me seems more like just. Price is just overall the interest rate being a very distinctive price because yeah, it yeah. affects all intertemporal decisions just being distorted. Is that a sufficient story to get us the boom and the bust? Well, I think again, you know, the way the particular transmission mechanism works in the in the system, uh, the uh, the money is injected in a particular stream of things. You know, now one of the things that would have to be modified on the in the in the development of the Austrian theory is you got to remember is that uh, they uh, developed a theory mainly Mises and Hayek developed a theory in the 1920 uh, well 19 teens 1920s and 1930s okay and uh, it's it's Vixell Mises theory of the cycle uh, Nut Vixell um, is a Swedish economist and there hasn't really been that much further development on the theory in the nitty-gritty aspects of it since that time. But a lot have changed in our financial institutions. For example, we have levels of consumer credit, which were not necessarily the case that they had at that time. Unimaginable, right. So when they were looking at things, they were mainly looking at the way in which loans were made to particular businesses. And so you would get a kind of, say, a construction boom and then a bust, right? And and that's how they explain 19th century and early 20th century booms and busts. Now what we would have to do is we'd have to examine more the particular details, institutional details, to look at the way in which consumer markets can get artificial. This is why when you said the thing about cons- financing consumption, the other way to look at it is also financing investment. And their focus right. was all on investment. That but in more recent yeah. years, you would have to talk more about financing you know, consumption behavior that we've had um, over over the years, and then the theory would be have to be modified. That, so that's one of the reasons why I, uh, or at least the application of the theory would have to be modified. And but that's why I emphasize the idea of the particular points rather than a particular narrative. I understand. Is which is is if you see money as a ragged process rather than an even process that adjusts up instantaneously. If you see the capital structure as made up of particular goods and patterns of goods combined together that have you know genius. Right. And then what you do is you end up by seeing the distortions that are that result because of the um, the issues you know the sort of confusion in the prices of those particular goods. Now the question is now, why is it that we emphasize monetary policy as opposed to, say, the other microeconomic restrictions that you raise, taxes and right. things like that? It's because money is, uh, even though we're talking about r- relative prices, money is the one thing that affects all the exchanges in the economy. So we want to put the uh, focus to explain the cluster of errors. Businessmen didn't all of a sudden just get stupid. They got they got they made a mistake for a particular reason, and the reason is is they got confused by the signal. And and now the question becomes in the history of economic thought whether or not that confusion can fit with the later developments of our understanding of expectations, which is what you raised before. And the only thing I would say about that is the rational expectations model 
So if you think about the way this, the theory went, it went from adaptive expectations in Friedman, which has this kind of lag built into it. Adaptive meaning you don't look too far ahead. You just kind of see what happened recently and right. you try to adjust without anticipating what all the adjustments might then entail. And that would normally affect what you'd want to do if you right. looked ahead. And whereas Lucas had, you know, you, you forecast it the future and then correctly and then re- wrote back re- you know wrote back into your actions today and so that would end up by nullifying a lot of this stuff mises back in the 1940s uh introduced an idea of what he called um elastic expectations in which he anticipates some aspects of what lucas's argument is but he kind of argued that you know and he also argued in, ni- in his 1912 book what he called lincoln's law he said you can fool some of the people some of the time but you can't fool all the people all the time right. and and so in that sense if if you have anticipated inflation, the prices are going to – investors are going to adjust up and then all this stuff, these distortions are going to be recognized. But the real problem is is, is that you can't – this is, goes back to the way Lucas sort of did this – is that it's very difficult for businessmen to sort out whether or not it's a real change in the consumption and uh, demands and, and supplies of a good or if it's caused by these distortions. And so it always pays for you to get in – during the credit expansion phase and then get out if you could do the right timing. But the point is, is that the difficulty of picking the right timing, you know, it would have been great if, if in August we all would have, you know, got out of the stock market completely, right? It would have been a lot better for us or maybe even six months earlier than that. Yeah. Let's apply some of this to what's going on today in the the housing um, situation because it's obviously very relevant. Uh, you know, we interviewed uh, Robert Schiller here. I interviewed Robert Schiller, and his story is is just well. You know, people make mistakes. They get exuberant, and they just all of a sudden prices start going up. And once they start going up, for once you see an appreciation of an asset, it even becomes rational. Even if there was nothing rational about the co- underlying cause of the go- initial appreciation, you, you can rationally then start investing in that asset as long as you get out before the, the bubble yeah. pops. Um, subsequent to that, uh, you know, I started doing some um, thinking and reading, uh, as listeners know. And to me, the 1997 tax reform was kind of an important uh, distortion that got this process started. All of a sudden, we took an asset that had been uh, taxable uh, unless you rolled it over into a new house. Uh, so a te- capital gain on your house was taxable unless you rolled it over. And we, in 1997, the, we, in 1997, the government uh, changed that law and made it so that you could get the cash out. And you could do it on more than one house, actually, which is really quite an amazing thing. That pushed up the demand for housing with other things that we might talk about, the government-sponsored enterprises, Fannie and Freddie, the Community Reinvestment Act. Those things all had an effect on the demand for housing. I've started to believe that perhaps the 1997 Tax Act was the single most important thing to get it started. But that clearly distorted the choice. This has nothing – I don't think it's anything to do with this is straight standard price theory. Right. That just changed the relative price of housing, the return on housing relative to other assets, and money would normally pour into it. Then in um, – but then in 2001 – Alan Greenspan uh, lowered the federal funds rate to its, I think, 40-year low of 1% and kept it there for two years, worried about a recession from 9-11 and the tech bubble. And as a result, adjustable rate mortgages uh, got very cheap, the the, the teaser rates, the opening introductory rates, and that made it extremely attractive 
for people to have uh, to borrow money to buy houses who hadn't otherwise been willing to do that. So my question is, and that clearly poured an enormous money, <clears throat> those two things, and with some other stuff, and then the securitization phenomenon, those things made it ex- an enormous amount of money, trillions of dollars poured into housing rather than to other things that would have been more productive. That clearly is an enormous social blunder by itself. That was, and I, and I want to emphasize that, that, that the trillions of dollars that went into creating new homes and bigger homes and refinancing of expansions of homes and, and renovation, that was capital. It's very important relative to your earlier story that normally would have gone into something else more productive, health innovations, entertainment innovations, whatever they would have been. And then suddenly that capital wasn't, was not available for those things. Instead, it went into housing. It's nice to have more houses. It's nice to have bigger houses. But that choice we made was artificially induced by those policy changes. But that just would have been a mistake as opposed to a catastrophe. The catastrophe has been coping with the adjustment as interest rates rose and as people who had borrowed the money couldn't pay it back. Um, in a very leveraged, highly borrowed uh, environment, as we've talked about in a number of other podcasts. How does that Austrian story fit in with that? Because I, the way I understand a lot of the, the Austrian response to this crisis is it's all the money supply. It's all Alan Greenspan. He pushed interest rates too low for too long that artificially pushed capital into certain areas. But I think the key is, for me, the reason the problem I have with that explanation is it, it pushed capital into a particular area, which was housing. I mean, I, Fed's been jerking interest rates around for, for since 1913. Right. And the Austrian critique of the central bank activity is, yeah, they distort things. Well, through most of that time, yeah, it's true. Sometimes we had some recessions. Sometimes they were horrible, like the Great Depression. But in, in the last 30 years, they've been pretty mild. Now, is that only because it was building up like a powder keg? Or was it just because of a disastrous... Uh, lowering for too long, or is it more this interaction between monetary policy and, and tax policy or something else? Yeah, I mean, I think, Russ, that the explanation that you gave, if I was not here looking at you and someone would just said that, I would say, yeah, that's the Austrian story of the boom bust compounded by, you know, a bunch of other policy mistakes. Because in order to um, basically uh, light the powder keg on all these things. You have to have these other restrictions. So the other day I gave a uh, talk at the Atlas Economic Research uh, Foundation, and uh, one of the things that I mentioned in there was that I don't see any reason why the Austrian story and the monetarist story have to be at odds with one another. In fact, if you look at the way they describe the Great Depression, they're describing two different parts of the Great Depression. One of they, you mean the Austrians and the Chicago monetarists. So let's just take, you know, Murray Rothbard and Milton Friedman as representatives on this. Rothbard's story of the uh, credit expansion and then the boom and bust really covers the period of time of the 1920s. Uh, Friedman's story is in the early 1930s and the Great Contraction. So there isn't really a conflict here about whether or not inflation – creates problems or deflation creates problems. Both of them are distortions in monetary policy caused by government policy mistakes. But in both stories, both Friedman and in Rothbard's story, when you get details about it, 
the contraction's not enough and the inflation's not enough. You have to augment it with things like what Higgs talks about, Robert Higgs talks about, which are all these microeconomic restrictions that prevented the market from being able to adjust. You know, Adam Smith has a wonderful line in The Wealth of Nations where he says that the, the power of self-interest and the market economy is enough to withstand, uh, 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 you know, a hundred impertinent, you know, follies of human lawmakers, right? But the problem is, is that when they get to be a thousand impertinent restrictions, you know, maybe the market can't absorb them enough and, and get around them. And so I would tell the story the same way that you just told it. I would say that you had uh, credit expansion uh, after, ni- after 9-11, a monetary expansion, which fueled a lot of this. You have distortion distortions in the microeconomic system that pervert the incentives and pervert the signals uh, that goes on, and that it's a combination of these factors which generates the difficulty of the problem that we're dealing with today. Um, And so in that sense, I don't see that as being, you see, Austrian economics, I don't think is economics any different than just good old economics. And at the end of the day, good old economics is relative price economics. And so what are the factors that are impacting on the relative prices that agents face in their choices? And to me, um, and what would would you know augment those things? So, you know, the monetarist uh, Austrian debate is really one of the relative um, uh, negative impact of deflation. You know, whether and and my own view, and some Austrians don't hold this view, but my own view is that that the best in the Austrian tradition held that inflation is a ragged price. A process of adjustment which causes distortions more than just shoe leather costs and uh, uh, and deflation is also a ragged process which causes you know which we don't have instantaneous adjustment of prices going downward the the Austrian argument on the deflation and I don't know if, if you interviewed George Selgin in yes. the program you know so the Austrian argument that is in a growing economy you know you should in fact if if you don't have expansions in a money supply you should see a declining price level called increase in productivity norm and so Selgin's basic idea is that you know it'd be okay to have the price uh, level less than zero you know uh, and inflation be yeah negative. less yeah and so that's fine you know that that's 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 fine. But the problem is, is when you basically suck the money supply out of the system, which is not the same as having productivity Slow, increases. Slow, steady. Yeah. yeah. What you have. I, let me just stop you there because a lot of that's about the speed of adjustment. I want, and I want to just sure. bring in your earlier point about the adjustment costs to the current situation. The the mess that we're in today in the American economy, we're taping this on uh, December 22nd, uh, 2008. The, the mess we're in today – Part of the mess, there, there's a whole bunch of it, but part of the mess is that housing prices were artificially high. They need to fall. And one view says, well, that's no big deal. So they fall and some people lose money and some people win. The reason it's so that adjustment is so catastrophic isn't the normal argument, which would be the human side, that people are going to lose a lot of money and that's going to be really unpleasant because a lot of the people who are going to – Default on their loans didn't have any equity in their right. houses. There's no much. There's not much of a tragedy. They were mainly renters masquerading as as owners. The real tr- tragedy, the ca- the catastrophic part of this, is that the adjustment itself isn't just oh well, real prices adjust. Some people win, some people lose. It's that a whole bunch of institutions made promises they're not going to be able to keep, and when those institutions are destroyed, it's not like the capital just flows right. to, to the new use, and it's not like well, a new institution just springs up to replace the old one. We have holes in the cap capital system. They're going to make it hard for people to borrow and lend, and that's going to be 
Well, I mean, costly. you got it on both sides. On the one hand, you know, you and I are, are um, you know, what we have is a strong uh, sort of uh, prior, uh, let's say, that uh, markets are these amazingly resilient things. One man garbage turns into another man's treasure, you know, overnight, you know, he sees it. And, and, and so you unleash the entrepreneurial spirit. It's not like these resources are going to go into a black hole. They'll be reallocated somehow. But the process of reallocation is not so pretty. Right. And we've made it very difficult in this country, as, as I was mentioned to you before we started talking. You know, I take the liquidationist thesis. I'm, I'm completely on board with that. But it's, it's meaning. Diff- meaning that you just liquidate these. these let some things go bank. Let, them, let, let go, things go broke. Yeah, let them go and broke. And pe- the way I describe it is let prudent people, people who are prudent, right. buy right. The, the assets that imprudent people misused. Right. And I, and but that's an easy thing to say because it's, right. it's more and complicated. And it's also more difficult now because of you know the, the way the court system has evolved, the bankruptcy laws. I mean, it's not as easy as when the pizza house down the corner goes out if now a giant a corporation yeah. goes. But yeah. let me uh, – you know, the other thing that you have to uh, you know keep in mind on all of this stuff is that um, – we are building in we, – what we've done is we've taken a market correction. In the current situation. In the current situation. And because of our policy responses, increased the distortion of the incentives that, that actors have um, and increased the regime – or rule uncertainty that exists in the environment for investment and 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 prudent reallocation. And because we've done that, we've then exacerbated the problem. So if you think about the idea of the credit freeze at some sense, right, the credit crunch everyone's talking about. On the one hand, if you talk to people, people who 10, 15 years ago would have met the scrutiny of the loans and had, you know, and gotten their loans, they didn't have a problem you know, still getting loans. That's true. It's the people in the last 10 years who have, because the standards collapsed, right, they haven't been able to get the loans again. Um, And then we call that a credit crunch because we got used to having very, very low standards of easy credit as opposed to the older standards. I mean, think about when you and I first got married or had, you know, or wanted to have, you know, get a house. What did we confront? We confronted a 20 percent down. Uh, mortgage, uh, you know, the, 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 the mortgage couldn't be more than one quarter of your, you know, monthly salary, which meant, by the way, as college professors, that we weren't buying any big house or whatever, right? Um, but nowadays, you know, they, they, they moved it down to, you know, to standards that, and we had, by the way, and go back, we had actually relatively secure jobs. Right. Because a college professor... Um, is a is a rel- is a relatively secure job, even, even untenured. It's untenured. a relatively yeah. I mean, when usually I teaching, you don't expect the college to go broke, right? You know? and, and you don't expect an untenured assistant professor to have to leave his job until at least six yeah. or seven years, right? And so, uh, but yet the standards were very high. Those standards all collapsed, and that in order to explain why that happened, see, this is why I don't like the Schiller explanation. In Schiller's model, somehow. Uh, individuals within the economy just had irrational exuberance. They just were way too optimistic. So it's a wild swing of optimism, and now we're hit with a wild swing of pessimism. Whereas the more microeconomic explanation asks, why did people... So it's not just a what question, you know, what happened. It's also a why did it happen. And when you do that, you have to look at things like 
the 97 change in the tax. You have to look at things like uh, the Community Reinvestment Act. Um, you have to look at the lawsuits, for example, that were brought against banks for having standards that then, you know, just because the lawsuit was threatened, now they're going to say, oh, well, we, we're not going to do that anymore. And, and, and so the, the New York Times had an article in Sunday's paper yesterday in which it tried to blame Bush for the whole thing and his strive to have community part of the problem. Yeah, it, it, and, and you know, I'm not saying it wasn't, but it's not the whole whole problem because actually these problems go back deeper. Way before yeah, that. but let me let me let me stop you there because I think when people talk about the credit crunch, it's it's actually I think the opposite of what you're saying. So, oh. like your reaction, it's actually quite easy to get a loan right now uh, to buy a house as long as you go back to the old standards, which is twenty uh, percent down. And it's a loan that's small enough to be guaranteed by Fannie and Freddie, which is under $417,000 because Fannie and Freddie now are being operated by the government as a – the way they were chartered to be run I think is the way they're being run now, which is conforming loans, conventional loans, uh, people with decent credit and willing to put 20 percent down. And if you, if you are in that category, you have no trouble getting a loan. But if you're not in that category, you have an incredible time getting a loan. So if you want to borrow $418,000, that market's not functioning very well. That's the first point. The second point I think people make is that uh, banks aren't lending to each other, and, and, and they're not lending uh, short-term to, uh, to other uh, economic institutions. Right. Now, I don't know whether that's really a big problem or not. Maybe they shouldn't be. I, I, it's uh, part of the reason we're in this mess is because of this bizarre overnight market that uh, Bear Stearns and others were in, which is which is what precipitated the policy response. And I, I want to talk about that and, and get your perspective on it. Back in March of 2008, we had what was to me the to me the 1997 Tax Act and other things were the thing that started the the housing price explosion. Now, what started the financial collapse is the government treatment of Bear Stearns. And for those of us who had that free market prior uh, and that tendency to believe that markets can are resilient, we have to answer the question, and I don't think we can for both uncertainty reasons and maybe the facts, what would have happened if the government had not been the – facilitator of the marriage of Bear Stearns and, uh, and Morgan. So here's, here's what happens. On a weekend in March, it turns out that Bear Stearns is bankrupt. Now, why is that? The reason they're bankrupt is for two reasons. They made a lot of risky investments in, in assets they thought weren't so risky, these collateralized debt obligations and mortgage-backed securities. Within Bear Stearns, there were two hedge funds that that were uh, investing in these assets, and it turned out they weren't they weren't as valuable as as they had originally thought. They got marked down, so all of a sudden this is the mark to market right. issue. All of a sudden, when it became revealed that the value of those assets was in fact dramatically lower than Bear Stearns had originally thought, all of a sudden Bear Stearns' financial position is much more precarious. And and this is the the other key point. All of a sudden, a lot of the institutions that uh, were going to bail Bear Stearns out overnight by lending him money, suddenly said, whoa, whoa, whoa wait I'm not so sure I'm going to get my money back. We're not going to lend them the money overnight that we've been, to let them, that we've been doing to let them carry through their, um, to the next day and, and survive this situation. Now, when that became known, Bernanke and Paulson said, we, we can't 
we can't let this happen. Now, at the time, I and others, you probably said, well, why not? Let them go bankrupt. Let them uh, go out of business and let their assets be revalued by the marketplace. And the standard argument, we've talked talk to Arnold about this as well, Arnold Kling in another podcast, and I think it's still unclear what, what the answer is. The standard argument question, what, the question at the time was, well, but if we let them go bankrupt because of that big pile of regulations and court activity that's going to happen, the whole credit market's going to freeze up because they're tied in through millions of transactions to other financial institutions. And as soon as those assets are tied up in bankruptcy court, the whole financial system is going to lock up, and so they have to be bailed out or, in this case, semi-bailed out. They're, the government guaranteed, uh, I think it was $29 billion worth of their toxic assets to, to make a suitor come forward and be willing to buy them. Morgan. So what, have they had, what would have happened if the government had done nothing? That's the first question. And the second question is, so that would be one argument for our side, the, the market-oriented side. The second argument would be, well, the reason they were in this highly leveraged world was because of the mismanagement of monetary policy. But that, I don't find that a very convincing argument. Um, to me, Bear Stearns should have been uh, – it's surprising to me that Bear Stearns and the other Lehman and AIG and others weren't more um, resilient. They, they put themselves in a position where they're, they're, they were prone to bankruptcy. So react to that. Well, I think let me start with the, sec- the second part and, and go and then come back to the first one, which is that I, I think that uh, in order to understand the situation that these firms put themselves in, you have to go back again to the combination of policies. So the the easy money policy uh, following uh, in 2001 simply uh, adds fuel to the fire of already distorted uh, microeconomic regulations that you sort of have already talked about. But a lot of those, which we haven't talked about, enough is, in fact, the government-sponsored entities like uh, Fannie and Freddie um, and the creation of the idea of a too-big-to-fail kind of idea. There is a moral hazard uh, issue uh, that people hear about uh, nowadays, but I think it's a real one. If you privatize the profits and socialize the losses, it makes sense for a businessman you or I or anyone else to, in fact, engage in riskier environments. And the partial deregulations of the way they could engage in certain of their uh, securities, these mortgage-backed securities, meant that you know, they would, they would uh, you know, sponsor a mortgage, then flip it and sell it and blah, 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 and all this stuff. And what you lose is you lose both accountability and, more importantly, calculability. You were trying to value assets which no longer were completely tied to a market. And so in this sense, you, you, you got further and further removed from the ability to engage in calculations over what the value of these assets were. And when they were revealed to be, in fact, not uh, the, as valuable as we had thought they were, the only way you can get them back to being valued correctly would be to introduce the market mechanism. It's very similar, not identical, but analogous to the situation that I confronted in my previous life as an economist, which is a Sovietologist, when you had the breakdown of the Soviet system in which you had a lot of firm assets which were, quote-unquote, valuable, 
but they didn't have a market valuation. And we just sort of, you know, were making up an idea. They didn't have calculability. So how, why do you get privatization? You need to get privatization in order to be able to get market transactions so you can, in fact, find out whether or not these resources are valuable or not, um, which is one of the reasons why you would want to have quick privatization as opposed to the sort of plan which took place a lot in the 90s, which was put in a firm in there and try to figure out, like a Western firm, to try to figure out what the value of these assets were without them trading on the market. And and so it's I hopeless. think yeah, which is hopeless because you're caught in a valuation trap, you know. And and I think that that's in a weird way what happened because we set the rules of the game up in this country so that <coughs> our you know uh, investment banking industry ended up by losing accountability and losing uh, calculability, and and so they 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 you know had to be confronted with that. Now now comes to your second point: what would have happened? Um, the counterfactual is always the toughest argument to hold, right? So what, what we do know happened was that various forms of bailouts and subsidies to keep uh, afloat imprudent decisions were, in fact, allowed. Um, and created a credit freeze, and created, ironically. And the thing they're supposed to be trying to prevent happened anyway, which right. is an argument for why we should have – I like the I like the better word – pulled the Band-Aid off quickly rather right. than slowly – let yeah. the pain come immediately. <laughs> you know, Ludwig von Mises used to say this line. He says, you know, you don't uh, – I don't know if Mises said it or my teacher, Hans Senholtz, who was Mises' student, related to us. But he used to say, you don't cure a patient with bronchitis by shooting him in the chest. And, <laughs> you know, that would cure bronchitis, but it wouldn't leave yeah. the patient. And to a large extent – this is how I learned, by the way, the, the relationship between what I was saying before about the monetary expansion in the 20s and the secondary depression of the monetary contraction in the 30s. What's is, in fact, what the government did was – you know, it ran over the it ran over a guy on the street, and then said, "Oh, we ran over someone. Let's back up." And they ran back over him again, and that that doesn't work. And I think we've done a similar kind of policy error right now, uh, which which was all these things. Now, I think. 20 years from now, I know you've had Mike Munger on the program, and, um, and 20 years from now, we will have the scholarship, the evidence, and whatnot for someone to do a thorough public choice analysis of what went on, you know, who benefited who at what expense and all that stuff like that. We don't have that right now. Uh, we don't know the details, but we have a lot of people run around and say things about Hank Polson because he was a Goldman Sachs guy and things like that. Awkward. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's <laughs> awkward it, 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 and, you know, and whatnot. But we really don't know. But right. I will tell you this much. What we do know is that Polson's prior is that these institutions are so venerable that if they go, the whole system goes. Right. And that's what I think you have to understand what was going on. So when Bernanke – I mean, let me be honest about this. Bernanke, when he became Fed chairman, um, I was actually fairly elated because I figured there, sure. we haven't had anyone who has as much knowledge about the you know monetary policy and the depression – ever be the president the head of the fed yeah, it's ever. Great. he's just phenomenal so in their mindset the eye anti yeah yeah <laughs> their eyeglasses that they wear going into it is that these are venerable institutions that if they go then the whole system goes um and, uh, you know, and as a result of this, I think that too big to fail mentality, uh, uh, too important to fail, dominates the way they've approached all of this all along. And also why they've ramped up the crisis 
talk about it, yeah. right? Because whereas if we step back from that idea for a second and don't think of these as institutions that maybe while they're venerable, they're venerable at a point in time, but they don't, they need to constantly be on their feet to keep that. So if you think about like Arthur Anderson and the Enron scandal, you know, imagine if the, you know, Arthur Anderson was the, you know, the accounting agency, right? And somehow they're, it's revealed that they're not doing a good enough job. And then we said, oh, oh we can't tell everyone about that because- We can't let Arthur Anderson fail. They're, yeah. they're one of the key, they're one of the big five. Yeah, every, all were. accounting practices in the world will collapse, right? And so one of the most important things about markets, which don't get talked about enough in our technical discussions about markets, is in fact the reputation mechanism of firms and, and, and the good reputation and the bad reputation. And, you know, the sad part is, is that, you know, like us as person, as people, uh, we can uh, use a lifetime to build up our reputation and lose it by one act, you know, one act like that. And that's what happens in the markets. Markets make people have discipline. And if we don't take away or if we don't allow that discipline to take place, which is what I would argue is going on at the moment, then what we do is we just reinforce the non-accountability and the non-calculability of these assets that's going on. And it slows down the adjustment process. So, ra- so it actually makes it more painful than what we what we went through. That's, but to me, that's the you know that's the Milton Friedman point. It's a profit and loss system. Yeah. It's not just a profit system. You need profits to encourage risk taking. You need losses to encourage prudence. I think you know. I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, this is the you know really bad timing. You know, Milton Friedman passing away, yeah, and then having this. But Anna Schwartz has been fantastic on this yep. issue, as she's pointed out. You know, Bernanke knows. Uh, you know, the depression inside and out, but the problem is he's fighting the wrong war at this time. He's fighting what a monetary contraction that took place in the 1930s when we didn't actually have a monetary contraction this time around. And, and so Anna Schwartz at 90 uh, plus has been absolutely fantastic on this issue. Let me, um, let me mention a, a, a point about language and then I want to give you another challenge. The, the language point I want to make sure people are aware of is that the word market failure gets thrown all around a lot. And market failure doesn't mean failures in the market. Um, capitalism and a, and a free market uh, worldview or an Austrian or liberty-oriented worldview, um, firms make mistakes. People make mistakes. They go out of business. They take too much risk. That happens all the time. We don't suggest people are perfect. That's not a market failure. It's true you failed. You're, yeah. you're out of business, but that's not a market failure. Market failure in economic jargon is a reference to a systemic uh, distortion that markets themselves are causing right. and, and that are due to the fact that the, ins- the natural incentives are flawed as opposed to the imposed incentives of, of the rules of the institutional framework that government creates. So I, wanna, I just want to make sure that distinction is clear. So people argue there's a, there, there's a market failure because um, people have um, – uh, there's externalities, say, or there's a, a something is a public good, and markets don't provide those very well, and that may be true. Our response then is, well, is there going to be an incentive for government to provide them well or accurately? And that that's the distinction I think is important for. I think, our worldview. I think that's an important point because a lot of people will say things like we've law- we've proven that the market doesn't work. doesn't work and stuff. But I'd say that our current crisis is similar to saying that if we had a system of a bunch of rent controls and there was a shortage of housing, that then you would say somehow the market has failed to provide adequate uh, supply of housing. When actually the reason why we don't have the housing supply is because of the rent controls that are in there. And so we- it is a government failure uh, story as opposed to a market failure. 
tell your story in the particular instance. And and the uh, the even more depressing example of that for me is healthcare. People mm-hmm. always say, "Look how bad our healthcare system is." That shows you can't leave the market in charge of healthcare. Well, we don't have a market any remotely like right. a market system in healthcare, as our recent podcast with uh, Stephen Lipstein. It's a, it, you know, it's a tough issue, uh, Russ, with this uh, because, you know, on uh, like to go back earlier, you know, Bear Stearns, as you pointed out, you know, why did they engage in this behavior? Why weren't they more, uh, you know, uh, risk Careful. management yeah. or more prudent? Well, the reason I think that you have to explain that has to do with that they face an incentive where it didn't – their downside risk was not that big to them because they knew that – that it was, you know, like the story in the Schiller story is that people thought housing prices would never come down ever that's again. That's not true. And that's not true. People right? knew they could come right. down. I don't it's, believe that. It's, it's that they didn't feel that these, uh, that the bad side of the risk was going to ever come due b- precisely because it was going to be insured against by the government agree. sponsored well, agency. I don't, I don't agree with that. I don't no, think, you that's don't think true. it's a moral no. hazard? No, I don't. I think, I don't think anybody at Bear Stearns. For example, figured they could be extra risk-taking because they were too big to fail or that the government would always bail them out or the government would bail out Fannie and Freddie. They were holding Fannie and Freddie paper to a large extent, which they were holding some, obviously. But they were holding a large amount of that and were aware of the fact that the government wouldn't be able to, say, guarantee all of it. But, of course, the government would eventually make it good. That part, that argument I can accept. But I don't. Th- I think they just made a mistake. I think, I think there's this – you know, I think the history needs to be written on this as to how much lack of transparency. There's a lot of complexity to this. I I don't uh, I don't think it's as simple as as you're. I agree with you. I don't think it's as simple as saying, well, you know, housing prices were going up. They didn't worry about it. No, right. I think they worried about it a lot. They obviously didn't worry about it enough. And I, when the more you study these these assets, the more ingenious I'm struck by how they were they were constructed. They were quite clever as a way to insulate against risk. I think there's more to the story. Um, I think people were aware that housing prices would come down. I don't think they were aware of what the consequences of those were going to be in this situation compared to the past. But that's another story, and I want to put it mm-hmm. to the side. Okay, yeah. let, let me let me. We've got about five minutes. I want to challenge you. You've told a very interesting story today about the Austrian view of business cycles. This idea that that credit expansion, uh, the over provision of credit. The artificial lowering of interest rates induces resources to flow into areas, particular areas that get distorted prices that cause uh, an ultimate correction to take place, and the pain of that correction is not straightforward. That's the way I understood it in a nutshell, the Austrian theory of business cycles. Yet, that theory has not gotten a lot of respect from mainstream macroeconomists. So two questions. One is, what would a main, so-called mainstream macroeconomist say in response to the Austrian theory? Because the general, they laugh. I, don't, I think they dismiss it. Oh, that's something in the 20s, the 30s, and we don't have to pay any attention to it. But does anybody take it seriously? And what's their alternative story? How, how do they explain explain this? You, know, you said, for example, that, that the monetary story of booms and busts, the monetarist story of booms and busts and the Austrian story – are not inconsistent with one another, but the Keynesian story, which has been the mainstream, some half or something like half of the mainstream macroeconomic community for the last 30, 40 years, or even longer, what's their response to the Austrian theory, and what's their explanation of booms and busts, and why do they hold those views? Well, I, I think that, you know, to start, 
with this um, whole thing, I, we got to go back to what I said in the beginning. There may be macroeconomic problems, but there's only microeconomic explanations and solutions. And so if you think about the way the, the narrative or the story sort of plays out, um, in that sense, you have to sort of tell a story that both begins in an equilibrium and then has a uh, shock to it that then brings about a outcome uh, outside of uh, equilibrium and then the, and then the process of adjustment back um, you, you know and and on and combination of that the agents are rational uh, at each of the points in in the story as opposed to becoming delusional or something and so in that sense uh, it has to be sort of a relative price story uh, with incentives and, and going all the way through so Bob Lucas as I mentioned earlier after he uh, sort of uh, did the Lucas critique and uh, in the in the 1970s and into the early 1980s he had the idea of um, the equilibrium theory of the business cycle in which he followed Hayek's pre-Keynesian strictures, which is that in order to explain unemployment, you have to begin in a world of full employment, explain the distortion to the system to explain why unemployment comes about in the first place. And he had this idea of the islands and the rel- difference between relative price adjustments or confusion and the, the – islands were little nodes of economic activity that didn't communicate perfectly perfectly with one another and so you have you know relative prices and a general price and there's a confusion between the two of those and that confusion causes problems the problem with that idea is that it's hard to work that model all the way through with a consistent uh rational expectations uh, uh, sort of, uh, you know, perspective because you should be able to pierce through the difference between the relative price and the and the general price. And so Lucas eventually um, sort of moves away from that model, and then you get real business cycle, uh, you know, models that develop later on. The Keynesian story, as as you mentioned, you know, that's unmoored to human choice. It's it's aggregate variables, yeah. right? It's it's aggregate uh, uh, demand failure. Um, and to the extent that human choice gets brought in, nowadays it gets brought in through behavioral economics and the idea that people get uh, diluted, they have psychological – giddy. Yeah, and, 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 and so I don't think it's really a quote-unquote economic explanation. I don't know if that's an answer uh, to you, but the difficulty – Let me ask it a different way then. What would be the, the Keynesian response to the story you told? Do they take that seriously? Uh, market. They would argue that the conditions under which markets work require such strict assumptions about rationality and the institutions, the competitiveness of the market and whatnot, that in the absence of those hyper-rational agents and perfectly competitive markets, mar- uh, market agents instead are in fact caught by uh, you know, their alluring hopes and their haunting fears and they, get, they end up by getting you know, uh, sort of diluted and the market is unstable and that's what we've seen. And so the only way to fix this is to have government as a corrective uh, to that, to provide the stability that that economic actors themselves can't provide. And so I think that part of the reason why the Austrian theory gets poo-pooed by people is because it's been tied up with arguments that other people think have have already been settled, arguments about a gold standard, arguments about the particular mechanism that we were talking about before, that it's just production, you know, investment, and, and now we have this consumer side and whatnot. But I think if you break down the Austrian story into the proposition that, you know, money is non-neutral and the adjustments take place through in a ragged way through relative price adjustments, that if you look at the capital structure is made up of particular capital goods that are both heterogeneous and, and have multiple 
specific uses. And, and then you, you look at the way in which distortion in the relative prices can distort that capital structure. Then the Austrian story doesn't become all that unusual from any sort of coordination story. And you look at the Austrian theory of the trade cycle as a long history of coordination stories that also um, make sense in, in Axel Leyenhoffet's, you know, work on Keynes and the Keynesians that the story that he tells about the Vixellian connection is very similar to the story that Hayek and Mises were telling. And so you see the Austrian theory not so particular to the Austrian school, but instead to a general idea of what coordination of economic activities takes place through time and that you can have distortions that then need to be corrected. And so therefore the Austrian story is just one of the other sort of particular stories about coordination failures that may take place in an economy and which puts the burden on the idea that it's it's a particular transmission mechanism of a credit expansion that causes that, that story. But there's multiple ways in which uh, we can be uh, distorted by government activity. I want to let our listeners know that we'll have uh, links up for if you want to read more about the Austrian theory. We have Mises' 1912 work, The Theory of Money and Credit, on at the Library of Economics and Liberty without charge. You can uh, read it online. We have other works on uh, Mises and Hayek on our site that will be available as well as, I hope, to links outside of our site. Uh, and in addition, um, I hope to be interviewing a Keynesian in the near f- uh, future, if not next week, uh, to uh, give a different perspective. Uh, my guest today has been Pete Betke. Pete, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thanks a lot, Russ. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.